Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Let's pray together. Open the eyes of our hearts, God. Help us to see Jesus on the throne of grace this morning. As your spirit Your word and your people converge in this sanctuary. I pray that you would mend broken hearts, strengthen weary bodies, and unify fractured lives. It's for your glory that we're here, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now I don't think there's ever been a more clear, and awe-inspiring statement of Christian faith than that. It's, it's got it all, right? It's got the cloud of witnesses, the call to holiness, the plea to perseverance, the work of Jesus. The whole thing is loaded. But that statement doesn't stand all by itself. It comes after a long series of expositions and exhortations have already been given. It's those expositions and exhortations that we've been looking at each week in this series of sermons on the letter to the Hebrews. And the statement that I just read carries the force that it does because of where it's placed in this letter. It's too strong for the beginning. The writer isn't there yet. The readers aren't ready for it. So the words and sentences and paragraphs all pile up until finally, 12 chapters in, it comes. It's it's like a musical crescendo that starts with small but important foundations and then swells up into something spectacular. Now if you don't know what a crescendo is, or if you've never heard what a crescendo sounds like, Take a listen to this. That's a crescendo, all right? 
That comes from a piece called Bolero. It was written in the 1920s. And I actually, you heard the pauses, I actually had to cut out several sections of the mid part because it took so long to develop. Matter of fact, uh, when it's done right, it takes 15 minutes for each instrument to enter and for the sound to reach its full height. Now it starts with that little snare drum that you heard. Rat-a-tat-tat, rat-a-tat-tat. And then come the flutes, then the bassoons, then the trumpets, then the violins, then the saxophones, then the trombones, then the tubas, and then almost every other instrument I have ever heard of, until finally they're all playing together, making that big, full, rich sound that you heard right there at the end. But here's the thing. You can't really appreciate the richness of that sound unless you take the time to listen as the music builds from that first little rat-a-tat-tat of the snare drum. Some of you have heard Handel's Messiah, right? It works the same way. It doesn't just break out in a hallelujah chorus at the very beginning. It slowly builds and winds and moves. It rises and falls, and then all of the pieces come together in a great moment of praise. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Right? Right? You know that song? And if I, if I had Jimmy's singing voice, I would probably give you more, but that's all you're going to get. That's all you're going to get from me this morning. <laughs> the case I want to make is that the writer of this letter to the Hebrews, just like a musical composer has taken up the pen and written a theological symphony that flows and builds and swells with expositions and exhortations until finally it erupts into this great crescendo. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Him. Who He is and what He offers is better than every other thing or person or religion that the world can offer. Do you believe that? The letter to the Hebrews provoked that question for those early believers. And I think that it still provokes that same question for us today. Do you believe that who Jesus is and what Jesus offers is better than every other thing or person or religion that the world can offer? And if you answer yes to that question then Hebrews looks us square in the face and says, well then, live like it. Just recently, we took an evening trip over to Stone Mountain with with the students. Part of the trip included uh, checking out the laser light show, but the first part of the trip, we spent walking up the mountain. And you know students, right? Some of them, with all their unbridled energy, decided to actually sprint up different parts of the mountain, while those of us with a little bit more years of experience took our time and slowly paced ourselves with a walk. Now, how many of you have actually ever been to Stone Mountain and walked up that mountain? All right, I figured a good, a good number of you. All right. Well, then you're probably familiar with that little rest station that sits about halfway up the mountain. right? It's a little spot where you can stop Sit down, grab some water, regroup for the next half of the, uh, of the walk or run. 
from that spot, you're able to look back and see where you've come from, and you're able to look forward and get a glimpse of what's ahead. We're at the midpoint in our series of sermons on Hebrews that's called White-Knuckled Faith. And we're, in, we're still in the midst of all those pieces that are building up to that great crescendo. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. And because we're at the midpoint, I actually thought it would be a good idea this morning to sit down, as it were, and take in the views in both directions. Where we've been and where we're going. So that's what I envision for this morning, stopping for a few minutes to think back about what we've already seen in this letter to the Hebrews, and also to look ahead at what's coming up in the weeks that follow. Now the letter to the Hebrews is a challenging text for us modern readers, especially because it weaves together so many strands of ancient thought and ancient ritual, and it assumes that its readers have some level of familiarity with what it's talking about. But honestly, even if we know a little something about the people, places, stories, and events, maybe even the commands of the Old Testament, it can still be a bit difficult to figure out what the writer is trying to do with all these things. And so I want to try to paint with big, broad strokes, what's being said in this letter. And my hope is that when we see how it all fits together, then a statement like the one that we just had at the start of chapter 12 will meet us with all the richness and power that it was intended to have. For starters, the whole letter of Hebrews resounds in every direction with references to people and themes from the Old Testament. In its 13 chapters, we encounter Old Testament people like Moses, Joshua, Abraham, Melchizedek, Sarah, Rahab, Noah, the list could go on. If you don't know anything about these people, you're going to have a hard time with the book of Hebrews. And then we also find Old Testament themes throughout the whole book. Promised land, covenant regulations the temple, the priesthood. Once again, if you don't know anything about these themes, you're going to have a really hard time with the letter to the Hebrews because the author presupposes some familiarity with these things. But I'll try to sum it up. Basically, the writer interprets the Old Testament like it's a story in search of an ending. It's continually pointing beyond itself toward a great act of salvation that would finally deal with sin and set the world right. And from that perspective, it's like the Old Testament needed a new chapter to be written. Something needed to happen in order to take the story of God and God's people and the world forward. The writer of Hebrews believes that the new chapter has finally been written with the blood of Christ. And therefore, who he is and what he's done moves into center stage in the story. That's exactly what we saw in chapter 12, verse 2, right? It said, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. A new chapter has been written. And everything we believe has to be interpreted now in light of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. 
So starting back in chapter 1, Jesus is presented as the Son of God, superior even to the angels. We're told that the Son is far greater than the angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. Now, angels had a good amount of prestige in that day. They weren't chubby little cherubs uh, playing harps with big halos, right? They were God's messengers dispatched from the throne room of God to give messages on behalf of God. And according to a reference in the book of Colossians, some people thought it was a good idea to actually worship these angels. So they carried a good amount of prestige. But angels aren't worthy of worship. Jesus is. If you're going to worship something, go higher than the angels. Go all the way up to the throne of God. And when you do, you'll find Jesus there because He's the one who's worthy of worship. Then Hebrews chapter 2 emphasizes that Jesus is also fully and truly human. Because the children of God are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He's one of us. And that means that He's able to sympathize with us. But you know, sympathy has its limitations, doesn't it? Just knowing that someone sympathizes with you doesn't really change the situation. Sometimes a hug, good as it is, just doesn't cut it. Sometimes you need help. And therefore, sympathy, if it is to be helpful, has to be coupled with authority. Authority without sympathy is no good. Right? Some of you had parents like that. All authority, no sympathy. Sympathy without authority... A little better. But authority with sympathy is the best. And so a powerful combination forms when what was said about Jesus in chapter 1 is paired with what's said about the sympathy of Jesus in chapter 2. And it leads the writer to conclude that since Jesus Himself has gone through suffering and testing, He is able to help us when we are being tested. Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 18, He not only sympathizes with us, He has the authority to help us. Then in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, Jesus upstages Moses and Joshua. Moses and Joshua are two big time heroes from the Old Testament. So this is, this is a big statement here. We're told that Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Now the contrast is obviously between Moses as a servant in all God's house and Christ as a son over God's house. You see that on the screen, right? That's the contrast being made with that text. Now Moses was the first person to convey the instructions of God to the people. But now, a new chapter has been written. And a new teacher has arrived. An authority that supersedes Moses has been given to Jesus. Now this transfer of authority can be most 
most clearly seen in those teachings of Jesus where he said, uh, you've heard it said, but I say. Right, you remember those? They're, they're throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, he said, you've heard it said. Well, who said what, what was said when Jesus said that? Right? You've heard it said, that's, that's a reference to Mo, what Moses said. Right? But I say to you. Right? So in other words, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Right? But I say to you, he who looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has done the same thing. Right? You see, this up in the game a bit. Right? Jesus didn't diminish the Old Testament. He supported it. Okay? Authority greater than Moses has been given to Jesus. And then Joshua. Right? Joshua. Joshua was the one who led God's people into the promised land. Now, the promised land was supposed to be the place where they received rest and blessing as they lived within God's covenant stipulations. But the writer of Hebrews says, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them rest, then God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. Right? There was another day. The rest was incomplete. There was more to the story. Right? A story in search of an ending. Through Jesus, the experience of God's promised rest is back on solid ground. And now He's the one who is leading the new covenant people of God into their new promised land of eternal rest and blessing. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Hebrews. Jesus is presented as the true high priest. This gets dicey because Jesus as the high priest poses a problem because He was from the line of David. And according to the Old Testament, being from the line of David qualified you to be the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel, but it disqualified you from being a high priest because the high priest was supposed to come from, uh, I'm drawing a blank, hello, uh, the line of Levi, <laughs> right? Number, uh, Numbers chapter 18 in the Old Testament, right? So you've got a little problem. What are you going to do about that problem? How does the writer solve the problem? I was reading this to Tyson yesterday. He said, how, Daddy? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. <laughs> he makes some tricky references to an obscure character named Melchizedek. Right? Not on everybody's top-notch list. Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is only mentioned two times in the Old Testament. The first is in Genesis chapter 14, where he is called the priestly king of Salem, and he receives an offering from Abraham. That's way early in the story. That's book of Genesis stuff, Genesis 14. And then the second reference is in Psalm 110. And the writer of Hebrews brings those two passages together to make the point. Now in the psalm, it kind of insinuated that the king is to be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then from Genesis 14, we knew that Melchizedek his priesthood didn't depend on ancestry. It was on the call of God alone. Because he was a priest that wasn't from the line of Levi. So the idea then, with reference to Jesus, is that if he's really Israel's Messiah, the true king, then he doesn't need to be from the line of Levi. Because he isn't just another king, and he isn't just another high priest in the long line of other kings and high priests. He is and remains the king and high priest 
forever. That's the point of bringing those two together. So Hebrews chapters 1 through 7 portray Jesus as the Son of God, the truly human being, the one who instructs and leads his people to the new promised land, and the helpful high priestly king who is available for all people for all time. That's moving pretty good. But the writer isn't done, neither am I. Chapters 8 through 10 reflect on Jesus' sacrifice that brought about the new covenant. The writer explains, But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for He is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant uh, with God based on better promises. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Jesus has brought about a far better covenant, and that new covenant is based on better promises. And some of those promises are all wrapped up in what I just said about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 through 7. Son of God, the truly human one, the high priestly king, so forth, so on. Better promises than what's ever come before. Jesus is better. Then chapter 11 introduces us to a list of people whose faith in God is worthy of imitation by those of us who are walking on this same path. Now here's the interesting thing about this list. Among the different lists of names that have been discovered by archaeologists during that biblical period, the name that comes at the end of the list is the most important. That was the position of prominence. It's like a big parade where the last float that comes is the biggest and the best. Or during the Olympic opening ceremonies, what did they say for the, for the biggest and best? What was to the end? Right? You watch all those people and all those nations cycle down the track. Right? We watch from A all the way to U. Right? Finally, I've got to turn this thing off. Right? But I didn't realize what was, what was saved for the best. Right? They lit the torch with this, with this huge uh, light thing that they, that they used. Right? They saved it for the end because that's the position of prominence. Everybody knows that. I forgot because I went to sleep. <laughs> the last name to be included in the list is the most important. So chapter 11, if you're familiar with it, you'll know it gives you name upon name upon name upon name upon name upon name. And then there's names. And see, they've been given descriptions. But then there's actually names that they're like, look, I don't have time to describe them. But ask somebody about him. Ask somebody about her. He was good. She was good. Right? Name, 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 name. And then the name that comes at the end of the list in the position of prominence is Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's referring to all the names that came before the name at the end, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There He is, at the end of the list, in the position 
of prominence. And you might remember that those are the verses that I started this message with. And I'm hoping that now in the, at, at the end of that long series of expositions and exhortations, you get to the crescendo. I hope that you hear it with the force and the richness and the power that it was intended to be heard with. The book of Hebrews declares at every stage that the Old Testament was pointing to something beyond itself. It was pointing toward Jesus as the true and lasting fulfillment of God's plan to reclaim and redeem the whole world. Yes, the promised land was good, but it was there to point to Jesus. Yes, the Torah was good, but it was there to point to Jesus. Yes, the temple was good, but it was there to point to Jesus. Something better has come, and it happened because of Jesus. Nothing was better than Him then, and nothing is better than Him now. That's the point of the little reminder given in the final chapter of the letter. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing was better then, nothing is better now, and nothing will ever be better than Jesus Christ. He is God's best. Who He is and what He offers is better than every other thing or person or religion that the world can offer. So don't drift away. A new chapter has been written in the blood He shed on the cross. And a new chapter can be written in your life today if you turn to Him in faith. Let's pray. God, I trust that Your Spirit is moving here in this place this morning. Give us courage to respond in a way that is fitting. If it's repentance, let us bring it to the altar. If it's confession, let us bring it to the altar. If it's praise, let us bring it to the altar. And when we come, we will be met with grace. I pray right now that hearts would be healed. Lives would be strengthened. Whatever it is that You want to do in our lives, God, I lift it up to You. Because You're the one who can change even the hardest heart. Do it now, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.